Hello and welcome to Watkins Wise Words, a podcast that celebrates conscious, passionate, wise and happy living. Thank you for tuning in and here is your host. So hello and welcome, my name's Steve Nabell and today I'm speaking with Rob Kendall on his book Work Storming. Now Rob has worked with many high profile organisations including the 2012 London Olympics, Vodafone, Virgin and BBC Worldwide and as mentioned he is the author of Work Storming published by Watkins and this is a book that explains how and why your career success can really depend so much on good communication in your work. And if you want to know more about Rob, his website is conversationexpert.com. Uh, Rob, hi. Good morning, Steve. So, I mean, I, I got hold of the book from Watkins just the other day, and I was looking through it. And um, can you just say, you know, why does so much of our career success depend on good communication? Steve, when you think about it, a lot of our day is spent in conversation in one kind or another. I think once upon a time, the way that we communicated was that we had to be face-to-face But, of course, now we communicate through so many different channels. And, of course, it depends a little bit on what your role is. But if you take somebody, for instance, who's a teacher or in some sort of care role or somebody who's in a sales role, the chances are that they're going to spend a huge proportion of their day speaking and listening. Mm. So conversation is going to have an enormous impact on both their experience of their job and their effectiveness in their role. And, of course, some people don't spend so much time speaking and listening during the course of their day, but the conversations they do have are still going to be vital for establishing the parameters of their work, resolving issues, uh, and connecting with other people. Yeah. I mean, I worked in the city many years ago, and I've worked in offices where people are kind of sitting in you know stacked desks opposite each other shouting hey how you doing you know what's going on over there and there are some people who are kind of sitting in little boxes you know offices shut away from people but even those people have to communicate don't they they certainly do and i i remember exactly the same going into one company where it was almost like there was a hushed silence and people were all tucked away in their little sort of horse boxes Uh, But at the same time, as you say, it's the only way we can communicate, collaborate with each other and also engage with customers is by having conversations with them. So for me, it's been a lifelong interest and passion to take the view that conversation is a skill as opposed to a talent that you're either born with or you're not and you have to put up with. Yeah. Now, the subtitle of your book is Why Conversations at Work Go Wrong and How to Fix Them. Can you just give us some examples? Of, you must have come across a lot of stuff of uh, where conversations have gone very wrong with unhappy consequences. Well, when you think about it, the, the nature of conversation is that it's happening very quickly. Hmm. And often we struggle to say exactly what we mean, which causes the first difficulty. And then on top of that, we don't always hear what people say. So one of the ways that we have to fill the gaps is by using inferences and also using assumptions to piece together what somebody else is saying. And, of course, it's this incredibly dynamic process, isn't it? Any conversation, uh, it's all happening very fast. So inevitably, that leads to miscommunication. Uh, It leads to situations where we don't actually hear what somebody's saying at all. And then that has knock-on effects. And, of course, that can be in a fairly trivial way where the consequences aren't too significant. 
But unfortunately, in other situations, it makes the difference between life or death. I work a lot in the construction industry, and it's really devastating to see how incidents occur as a result of very simple miscommunication. And one of the things in my book I examine is the transcript of the worst uh, disaster in aviation history. And, you know, again, it's just devastating to see the impact of a very, very small miscommunication ends up with two planes colliding on a runway. So whatever your role, it has a part to play. Goodness, right. Um, I remember some years ago reading a book, uh, was it The Tipping Point uh, by Malcolm Gladwell? Uh, was it, but not The Tipping Point, one of his other books. And he talked about uh, a, a plane crash. I think it was Korean plane crash. And it was something between the Korean pilots and the American kind of ground control. And the, the, the Koreans were so pl- pl- polite. And, and because of, there was such a cultural difference, it cr- created this crash, apparently. Do you find there's also cultural differences? Yes, absolutely. There's a chapter that I write in the book that focuses on cultural differences. And, you know, there's a particular situation I use. I use characters in the book and it's someone who works for an English firm that has a supplier that's doing a lot of their IT work in China. And, and you know, he has this really uh, um, gets sort of so rapidly trained suddenly going out to China and trying to apply the customs and the practices that he's used to in his own environment uh, and goes out there and finds that he gets into all sorts of difficulty, you know, not least of which just going into a meeting and sitting down in any chair and finding that they're horrified that he's sat in the wrong chair because in the Chinese culture there's a particular place that he needs to sit, uh, seating next to a particular person and facing the door in a particular way. And so he ends up having a crash course in cultural differences. And, of course, the same principle applies wherever you are in the world. Uh, Some cultures are more similar to others. But it's something that we need to be aware of, and it has huge implications for the way that we speak and listen with each other. Yes, and and I guess um, I remember uh, somebody telling me if in Japan, if somebody gives you their business card, accept it with two hands and give a bow. Otherwise, they consider it extremely rude if you take it with one hand. I mean, it's all these kind of things, isn't it, really? How things start going wrong right at the beginning with something we've got no idea or don't even think about. Yes, and one of the things I recommend so strongly is to at least start observing conversations and be open to uh, the fact that there are differences and to ask people, if you're going into a different environment, how do I need to behave and operate in this environment? so that I don't cause offence. And then if I mistakenly do, then what do I do to sort it out? Yeah. Then one of the chapters, you're talking about gender difference. Do you think that men and women speak on kind of different wavelengths? Well, I think it's dangerous to make universal statements about men and women. Mm. Uh, But at the same time, I think if you look at it statistically or proportionally, there are differences uh, so often. And you see that, I see that again and again, when I'm working in an organization where you've got groups of people operating together. So there's a woman called Deborah Tannen, who's one of the leading experts in the world on gender differences and language. And she talks about this difference between what she refers to as rapport talk, which is more the way that uh, women tend to communicate. So, for example, they're more concerned often with affiliation 
and with facilitating the flow of conversation. So, for example, they tend to ask many more questions than men. Uh, One of the studies said that they use 85,000 potentially more pronouns a year than men do. So they would uh, use language like I and you and we to be able to be more inclusive. Mm. Whereas for men, there, there is often a different agenda. So they're more concerned about avoiding vulnerability, uh, about maintaining their independence, and also to a certain extent around their status in relation to other men. So you can see that right from an early age from boys at school. Yeah. And of course that has consequences for the way that, for instance, meetings happen. You know, women often find that it's difficult to get their voice heard because men have a preoccupation with elbowing their way into the conversation and trying to get their voice heard. And so uh, often they're really oblivious to the impact that that might have for women. And I I use the example in my book of of a a particular organization where I was in where there was only one woman in the whole senior management community. And I was sitting next to her one night at a dinner and the the, the conversation rather deteriorated, I'm afraid, around the dinner table. And I got to the point where I was rather concerned about, you know, the direction it was going in. And I, I turned to her and I said, how do you cope? And she said, well, I behave like a man. Right. And, you know, that was her mechanism for really being able to survive and cope in that environment. So I think if we can be more aware to some of the potential differences, including gender differences, mm. that's just one piece of the story, then that helps us have more effective conversations with each other and avoid clashes and difficulties. Well, I suppose one aspect of, of work is uh, universal is kind of we work in teams usually. We don't, very rarely do people work completely isolated. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of a freelancer, but I'm working with other people, you know, in various ways. So isn't communication essential in terms of rapport? If you want to work, get on with a team and actually kind of feel connected to them and, and even get things done, you know, I mean, a friend of mine works in the corporate world. He says that she's very bad um, uh, kind of work ethics going on, but he just uses all the time good communication just to try and get things pushed through. Um, what is the kind of impact of communication on teamwork and rapport, would you say? Well, I think it's absolutely fundamental to it. And I think we have to remember that there's two sides to communication. We tend to focus so much on the speaking side of it. Yeah. But possibly the listening side of it is even more important. Mm. And when you think of it in that way, if you're speaking to somebody, even if they're slightly distracted uh, by something else, it has an impact on the quality of your speaking. There were some interesting studies done where they put people uh, to together talking to each other and they just put a mobile phone not even on but they put a no- mobile phone on the table between them mm. and they found that even that act in itself had an influence on the quality of the conversation that they were having mm. so i think when you get together with teams i'm not saying that it's always bad but i think what we tend to do is to get into all sorts of bad habits um, if you take meetings as an example in many meetings it's acceptable with teams that somebody does their email during the meeting or zones out and thinks about other things. Mm. Uh, Whereas I think if you can create strong agreements about how you're going to operate, then it can 
drastically improve the quality of your interactions and your meetings. And if you bear in mind that on average an organization spends, people spend about 15% of their time in meetings, mm. um, it's, uh, for, for most employees it, the average is about 62 meetings a month. But the problem is that they also say that a third of their meetings are a waste of time. Mm. And so if you can instill, I think, really good, strong agreements uh, amongst teams, then they're going to have shorter meetings. They're going to have more value from them. Hopefully, they've got more room to challenge each other and give feedback to each other. And the combination of all of those things hugely increases uh, their effectiveness and their experience of connection with each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned there's loads of meetings going on. Uh, you know, was, was, I think you said 62 per, per month. Um, you've got a chapter which is talking about listen before speaking and listen slowly. I mean, I was quite cu- curious about that statement, listen slowly. If time is so kind of, you know, uh, people are so pushed for time, aren't they? How can we listen slowly? It's an enormous challenge, isn't it, mm. to, to take that on. And often we think, well, we just don't have the time to do that. Uh, I really like this quote that, that I use in the book, um, which said, um, you know, meditate for 20 minutes a day unless you're too busy, in which case meditate for an hour. (laughs) And uh, I think the same applies with listening. Often we think, well, I haven't got the time to be able to do that. Mm. And yet once you drop that out, then your, your effectiveness only gets worse. And there's a character in the book called Jack, and, and Jack manages a whole bunch of retail stores. And he is preoccupied with his work, and he goes home one evening, and he is having dinner with his six-year-old daughter called Ellie. And he's talking to her, but he's really too busy to hear her answer because he's thinking about everything else that's going on. Mm. And she starts to tell him about her day, but she's speaking very quickly. And and he says to her, could you just slow down a minute? And she looks him in the eye and she says, well, we'll then listen slowly. Um, And she really fires an arrow directly to the heart of the problem, Mm. which is that Jack is too busy, too distracted uh, to actually give people his full attention. Mm. And whether it's his six-year-old daughter or whether it's one of his store managers, he doesn't really feel that he's got the time to be able to be with them. And his mind is constantly engaged with the last conversation or the next one where he needs to be next. Mm. And the problem with that is then whether it's his daughter or his staff, they feel, well, it's not really even worth going and having a conversation with Jack because he's not going to have the time and the space to be able to listen. Mm. And I think... Steve, when you then look at that uh, problem against the fact that the Gallup research of 25 million people says that one of the most important criteria to people feeling motivated in their role and engagement in their job is that they feel that their opinions count. Mm. Of course, your opinions can't count if you don't feel that you're getting heard. Mm. So I think that's fundamental. And really what I try to focus on is is simple, easy-to-apply practices that help you bring your attention to the conversation that you're in. So a simple practice of learning how to switch on and switch off, which any professional sportsman or woman would do as part of their training, you know, for the sport that they're in, is learning how to, to bring their attention fully 
to the moment that they're in. If you can just practice that, even make a 10, 20% improvement in it, mm. the difference it makes to your sense of connection with other people and your productivity in your role is absolutely enormous. Mm. What about um, mindfulness? Because you've touched upon it there about you know, being present. I know in your book you talk about it. How do we avoid being kind of reactive or, as well as switching off? It's a tough one, isn't it? Because we live in such an interrupted uh, workplace now, an interrupted world. And one of the things that I'd look at in my book are the forces that are shaping the way that we communicate and are encouraging us to more have mindless rather than mindful interactions. So there's four afflictions, I call them. They're, they're more like coping strategies, really, for the information age or, or rather what I refer to as the information overload age. Mm. So the first one is that we tend to stack our diaries so full that we don't really have any uh, time and space to stop and to think or pause or listen um, the second one is spinning, which is more around our attention. There, were, there was a, uh, some research done by Microsoft recently where they, they said that our attention span is now shorter than that of a goldfish. Mm. Uh, it's supposed to be about eight seconds before we tend to get distracted. Mm. Um, the, the third one is skimming, which is about the way that we deal with information. We just sort of pick out the gist of, of things and the highlights because we don't feel that we've got time to go into more detail. And then the last one is spilling, which is about our boundaries and the fact that the boundaries between home and work and one task or another are, are becoming more and more blurred. And each of those things encourages mindless conversations, mm -hmm. the kind of ones where we come, out, come away from, we think, why on earth did I say that? Or why did I send that email? And we regret it afterwards. Or sometimes we think, actually, I had my moment to speak up but I didn't take that moment. So I think sometimes just taking a little bit longer to stop and pause and think about what we want from a conversation, but also think about what experience we want somebody else to be left with mm. would lead us to make a different choice and respond in a different way. And actually, there's very good brain science behind that in the sense that when we're reactive, we're, we're operating really more from the limbic region of the brain, which is more our fight or flight center. Mm. And actually, when we stop, and as soon as we reference our values and think about uh, what's really important to us, we use a different part of the brain. We use the prefrontal cortex. And that allows you or gives you the opportunity to, to, to provide a much more mindful response. So I found it really interesting to explore this idea of mindful rather than mindless mm. conversations. And sometimes if we make very small changes to the way that we tackle our conversations, the difference it makes is very, very significant. Brilliant, brilliant. I wonder, Rob, have you ever been called into or have you ever had a situation where you've been um, with people that it's gone so far that they're in real confrontation, you know, that they're either emailing, escalating or angry phone calls or angry meetings? What about if it gets to that stage? Is there anything that could be done then? Well, I suppose it, it depends whether it's you having the conversation and it's going too far or whether it's whether it's two other people. Yeah. Uh, but I think one of the things I talk about is the, the, the warning lights that tell you a conversation is going wrong. And one of those 
is escalation where it starts to get a bit out of control and it's like your emotions start to take over at that point. And actually in that situation, when you notice that starting to happen, I find the best thing that you can do, I refer to it as pressing the stop button, Mm. which is that you just take yourself away from the conversation. Mm. And again, what you do then is allow for your emotions to cool and for you to think about, hang on a minute, how do I actually want to respond or what's important to me in this situation? So I think sometimes when that happens, rather than waiting till it's caused disastrous consequences and it's all gone off the rails, if we can stop ourselves and change direction in a conversation, then maybe we go back to it, but we go back to it in a different way. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, look, Rob, it's a brilliant book. It's packed with information. One of the things I, I was drawn to was talking yourself into a drama, which is kind of what you've been talking about here. So um, this book helps you kind of avoid that as well as a lot of other communication issues. So um, Rob Kendall, Work Storming, thank you for, for chatting with me. I'd oh, love to speak to you. Thanks so much, Steve. All the best. Like what you've heard? Be part of our community by visiting watkinspublishing.com, following us on Twitter at Watkins Wisdom or liking us on Facebook. <laughs>